Everyone, welcome to another episode of Talking Force. We're here in the lab again tonight. We're joined by Eric Renahan, my colleague, my partner. And again, uh, we're excited tonight to talk about a few things that, I don't know, we don't usually get a chance to kind of uh, discuss and think about because usually we're caught up in the wash of the, the daily grind. Eric, what are, you, what are you up to? I know last time we spoke, things were kicking off with the combine and, and like that. What do, you, what do you got going on? Yeah, we're just wrapping up now. So we're hoping... We have a good uh, week coming up next week, so these guys can uh, get to their team workouts and get to the draft. But we're got a few guys coming back from the um, NFL group. The OTAs are wrapping up. Our NHL group is is strong right now, so we're in a, a good spot to head into July and be busy. What was the biggest aha moment you had? I know you didn't take these past couple of weeks and just kind of go through business as usual. What did you? Uh... What did you take away? What was your kind of nugget or learning lesson? Um, I would say our taper are, are working better than I thought they would. What do you mean? How, how did it work better? I just thought, uh, you know, when we got to the, we got to the point where we thought we needed a taper for the NFL pre-draft uh, group. The problem was that we, they were in pro days this year. So we were tapering a little early on some guys and we tapered a little late on some guys and, I think this year or this group with the NBA combine, we were actually like right spot on with our taper. The guys are peaking right now in terms of all of the, the metrics and the variables. So it's, it, you know, I think we did a good job with that, with this, uh, this class. So I was pretty pleased with, with the results after uh, last week's drop off in, uh, in load and volume. Yeah. What's next now? Who's the next one coming in? We got uh, a few guys coming back from OTAs uh, for, for NFL, and we got our NHL group uh, that's buzzing right now. And I, I, I th- we're hosting the Australian national team for basketball next week. And they go to Vegas in July for their pre-Olympic bubble. So that's going to be interesting to see uh, how they're prepping for that and you know, just obviously taking um, precautions from the, the restrictions with COVID and such. You know, one guy gets – Pops, pops a positive, they're out of the Olympics. So it's a pretty, um, you know, strict protocol that they're following when they get here. So it, that'll be interesting. Now, when you get these guys coming in, do you have full reign to do whatever you want? Or is it pretty much within the rules of the league? Or how does that work from the private sector? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're trying to communicate with the teams and the organizations of the of the guys that are here. Obviously, we want to make sure that they're they're checking the boxes off on the things that the teams want them to focus on. Uh, with the national team, you know, we're, we're working directly with them to uh, accommodate them from a, a sports sciences and sports performance perspective. They're bringing their entire medical staff, but um, the performance side is not um, going to be part of that. So we're going to help um, you know bridge the gap for them there. So that's directly working with the Australian Basketball Association or, uh, Federation. And then, um, you know, like with the NFL and the NHL guys, it's just purely communication with their teams. And then, you know, certainly using our, our technologies that we have to give us some better insights on what these guys might be needing to work on uh, from an individual basis. You meant, as you mentioned that, you know, I, I think it's interesting as, you know, each, each person, each team, each program and league kind of has their own philosophy on thought on how much sports science they want. But one of the things that was kind of interesting, um, I spoke to, was speaking to someone last week about was the role of blood testing and some of these other measurements. So I know Gatorade just came out with that sweat patch and I thought that was pretty interesting. I also know the guys over at NutriSense. Uh, we're fortunate enough to get a sample, try some of that stuff out. That's pretty incredible. Cause when we start thinking about, you know, blood testing has always been medical. Um, but now in the sense of being able to see like, what's it, someone's HbA1c if they're a 4.3 I know at Yale we had guys that were just you know they would have low low a1c's and so you'd say okay that's good they're insulin sensitive but those were also people that were always getting sort of muscle cramps I think at one point it was called bonking it was all these different things so we were able to use different products and strategies to mitigate that and those are things that had we not known we would have just said oh you need to hydrate you need to hydrate would have actually made it worse so I wonder kind of what the role of blood testing will be especially it becomes pretty accurate from the consumer market. So whether it's ketones, whether it's glucose and some of the other, you know, as you get into um, saliva or you start getting into some of these other metrics, I wonder how much of a role that'll play into that base foundation. Cause I was shocked from some of our original work that we did when we looked at it, how many people just suck at vitamin D. 
You know, mm. how many individuals are pre-diabetic and you didn't know, and here you are trying to write a plan and our domain has always been the weight room, but I wonder how much blood testing and kind of just call it formally formal medical testing plays a role into before you even get started. Cause if that stuff screwed up internally, it's going to drastically impact whatever you do. Yeah. I mean, I look back at a, you know, a few, few years in a row here in St. Louis, well, we were, you know, we were starting to look at biomarkers um, with some pretty good granularity because, you know, we were trying to figure out what, why are guys not responding to, you know, what we're doing here with either trying to load manage or trying to, you know, keep these guys fresh in the weight room. And, you know, it's like you're taking care of your car, you get your brakes checked, you know, you're doing all these things to keep your car clean, but if you're not checking the oil, I mean, you're going to be in trouble. So, you know, we look back on some of those things like vitamin D and, you know, C-reactive protein, you know, free testosterone, whatever, whatever, you know, indicator we think is impacting our guys or our athletes. And, you know, those are going to be certainly, much more impactful than, you know, like, Hey, like let's have you eat 60% carbohydrate and, you know, 20% fat and, you know, 20% protein. That's, that, that's a little bit too general. If we can get vitamin D and we can, you know, increase that free testosterone and, you know, maintain some lean mass and reduce the, you know, inflammatory markers, we're going to be in a much better spot with our athletes over the long term, And so I, I biomarker analysis, blood drawing, all, all that is, I think a really underrated tool. And I don't think it's being utilized as, as well as it can be, especially um, at, at higher levels um, in the industry. I mean, I had a, I had a conversation the other day um, and the, the podcast, I don't, I don't know if it's, if you've had a chance to hear it when it comes out, Speaking with Dr. Dota from the Mayo Clinic was absolutely fascinating. And one of the things he said to, said to me and, and was saying to everybody was, you know, when someone has a concussion, he described it as like a fire and he goes through all the processes and it's really incredible. If you haven't heard it, you got to hear it. But one of the things that he said was in this product that he helped design at the clinic, they put in BHB and I said, oh, that's interesting. You went ketones uh, for that. And I know there's been some glucose metabolism issues that came out of, I think, I believe Yale, uh, Dr. Uh, Dixet did that over at, um, at the school of medicine, but basically, you know, we know that glucose gets impaired when you have a concussion. And so in order to not have the brain starve from energy, ketones cross the blood brain barrier. So they're feeling, so that makes sense. But then he goes and says, and in fact, the more sugary you are, the more oxidative stress, uh, or the free radicals it kicks out. So you're actually making it worse. And I go, holy crap. You go back and think of how many kids are just sl- slamming down Gatorades or they're slamming down some sort of, you know, soda or whatever. And you need to be smart. And that's again, too, especially within the Gatorade lineup, maybe you give them a Gatorade zero, maybe you give them something else. Maybe you're just mindful, but those are one of those things. If you have someone who's naturally sugary for whatever the reason, um, you know, you could be doing harm without even knowing. So I get, I, I kind of feel like that should be an automatic baseline test either when you get original intake or just kind of something that you're monitoring. And like I said, obviously you could go overkill and use the well, NutriSense or some sort of CGM and, and you'd actually see it in real time. But I was thinking about, Oh my God, like that stuff's got to be standard now. I think, I think that bridge, that, that gap between science, medicine, performance, I think that, that gap is, uh, is narrowing. And I think the top practitioners are going to have to figure out a way to use that you know, into their program. Yeah. I mean, you can even, you can even look at just general muscle building, uh, compounds like creatine, right. And, and talk about the neural protective effect, uh, benefits of, of creatine, um, you know, when it comes to concussion and concussion related symptoms and the, you know, there's, there's so many, there's so many things available to us right now, uh, you know, in terms of, you know, ergogenics that, that, that cross the spectrum of, not only performance, but health. And if we can figure out better ways to identify what those things are, we can really give our athletes, you know, a whole lot more um, by doing less. So, you know, you, you kind of look at what are the, the, the big pieces to these things like vitamin D and, you know, omegas or whatever it is. And then you say, okay, what else does it do? You know, is there research on other benefits? And if you can find, other benefits you can get more bang for your buck with with some of these um, products and i i still kind of you know thinking back to some of the 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 athletes that we had 
over the last several years that ended up with concussion or were diagnosed with concussion. And you look back and you say, man, if I, if I, I knew creatine was neuroprotective, if I knew curcumin was something that could help with some of these inflammatory markers that, you know, these, so these fires that, that start on, you know, in these certain um, scenarios, I would have been giving those to, to every one of our athletes. And so, you know, to be able to understand what those do, it's important, but also to be able to measure it, it, it I think it's even more important. So looking at those biomarkers, I think it's super, super important for teams to be doing that. Yeah. I, I just, I just can't imagine going back into a world where you wouldn't know that because I remember at one point arguing with somebody and they said, you know, uh, and this was something that I took from Charles Poliquin talking about, and I believe it was his Tim Ferriss podcast about the HB1, HbA1c, go through, take a look back at it, go see the number, blah, 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 blah. And I remember someone saying, well, and you know, you can, because I've heard stuff too, because people have higher turnover. So, or they have longer lasting uh, blood cells. So it might artificially go higher or low, but just unless you're going to do a glucose tolerance test on everybody, it's a good general marker. And I remember somebody saying to me, there's no proof that that's a, you know, performance marker. And I just said, okay. And again, I, I'm just a strength coach at the time. And I just said, I just want to make sure that I'm clear that if someone is diabetic, someone is not diabetic and they do the same training plan that you think they're going to get the same results. Cause we, we fight so much for insulin sensitivity. You know, you get into muscle building, you talk about protective mechanisms, you can only grow as much as your body's allowed to recover. And so whether it's ice baths, whether it's uh, cryo, whether it's any of kind of the modalities from simple stretching and active recovery to, you know, super high end, you know, things, you got to have a plan and just realize everybody just responds so differently. And I just, I just think that that's just something that, you know, I think it's worth more research looking into, but I also think it's something that if you're listening and you don't have a plan, go to CVS and you can buy some of these things and get it started. Now the poor man, I don't know if you ever heard the poor man's glucose tolerance test. Have you ever seen this again? No. Coach. Yeah. You go, you take a glass of orange juice. You always take your blood sugar, take a glass of orange juice, and then you wait for it to get to below 100. And and the question is, well, what if it never gets below? Well, there you go. We have a carb problem. But if it goes quickly or if it starts to change, you can start to go look. So you can look at it at 15. You can look at it at 30. You can look at whatever. But I thought that was a really interesting way just to go about start thinking because whether, whether you're trying to get faster or stronger or whatever, especially in the developmental areas, until you've maxed out you know, the muscle fibers, that might be one of the greatest areas you could put your focus on. We used to call armor. You know, We never worried about body fat. Just go add muscle. I've never met somebody who gained a bunch of muscle and got more explosive that, you know, also added a ton of body fat. And I think again, that, that F word gets tossed around pretty quickly. Uh, you can get yourself into trouble and then, uh, lose the ability to do some of the perks that we had like DEXA scanning. So, right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it, it, I, I think, you know, if I'm looking at, uh, you know, a simple battery of intake with an athlete on a regular basis, I mean, I'm, I'm including biomarker no matter what, uh, you know, to better understand just what's going on with the athlete inside the chemistry, you know, the, the genetics that can impact how they respond to training. And yeah, it, without, without doing that, you're really just, you're missing a critical piece to the, the potential of that athlete and how you can help them. So, you know, if I'm, if I'm simplifying an intake process, you know, biomarkers are one of those things that are staying in there. Yeah. And if you can't do biomarkers, so again, another one we, we'd say, people say, oh, you can't DEXA all the time, or I don't have it, DEXA. One of the easiest things, we, I remember every January to, to you know February 1st or February 10th for football and for lacrosse, it'd be in, in the month of June, um, we would joke, it was called the Husker season. And the Husker season <clears throat> was a tribute to some of the work that Boyd Epley did back in the day, and then Bill Kramer with the research on the metabolic circuit. And I, I've seen people and all the internet trolls say what they want, but I mean, we would consistently within about a month period, eight workouts, put on 350 to 375 pounds of muscle on 75 guys. And it was averaging 3.7 pounds of muscle. And the crazy thing is, is that we would go in and people would say, well, how did you know they just weren't getting, you know, they might gain 10 pounds on the scale or 15 pounds. And my first year there, I had someone who was very, very stubborn. And I said, you have to trust the process. And I remember, forget he gained 15 pounds and then he went and jumped. And his vert was up three inches. Right. So he started looking at it and I was like, and you're still a little fluffy right now, but you've gained some muscle. And so for figuring out that you don't necessarily have to measure the body fat 
if someone gains weight and their vert goes up or their power goes up, you're headed in the right direction. And I mean, you could do simple things if you could do just a peak power, or if you could get into the peak relative or average relative, I mean, all those things, if those markers are going up and you're gaining weight, that's way better. And it's way better than if they start losing weight and those numbers go down. Cause now, you know, you got, uh, you got an even bigger problem, but I, I don't know. I just, uh, I think there's going to be a lot more in the future about blending kind of these proxies. A force plate, typically people think about mechanics of jumping. They don't think about using it as a body contest, but yet it's one of the easiest things in the books you can do. Yeah. I mean, there, there's a, I think a Twitter thread that I was reading the other night and it was a, it was talking about, um, you know, being bigger, stronger, and faster, stronger, bigger, stronger, fat, whatever the order was. And, you know, I think people were, you know, obviously debating each other about the bigger part. And, you know, I, I, I think I, you know, I talked to somebody about that and explained it as like, you know, if you were looking at it, you know, being bigger as part of the equation to, to be stronger and faster, you got to really start to be clear on what that means, you know, just adding more mass isn't the key, but you know, is it, is it going to be propulsive mass that you add to the equation? And, you know, you in, in most team sports and, you know, most of those sports in North America that are team sports, you're going to probably benefit to have a little bit more propulsive mass. And it's going to give you a couple things, right? You, t- you said the word armor, you know, you're going to have a little bit more robustness and you're probably going to be able to create a little bit more, horsepower when you need it and you know it's confusing to some people a lot with the you know the different names that people use when they're describing their their philosophies or theories but you know i think it simply comes down to is it propulsive mass or is it not and you know you talk about the muscle architecture and you know rate of contraction and you know you know all these different concepts that can be um you know contributors to what we're able to see say on the force plate or you know the kinetics that we're able to measure and it's you know like there's so many pieces to the puzzle and um it's hard to be very vague with people on some of those things but it's it's also a little bit uh, confusing when you go into the you know nitty-gritty details of it yeah and and you got to know your sport I, i laugh when people say you need to get bigger i never say you had to get bigger you have to gain muscle mass we had individuals that stayed on the scale the same weight their entire career but you just saw them get leaner and leaner and leaner and leaner. And then you start seeing guys that are 315 and they're lean for all intents and purposes. You look at them, they look 260, 270, but you know, they step on the scale and they see it. And so it's a, it's a misnomer. I like how you talked about that propulsive mass because you know, the idea is you put, you put the tissue on. So you have cylinders in the car and again, your force is directly limited by the cross-sectional area of the fiber. And depending on your genetics and your parents love them or hate them, you know, you are some level of twitch and, you know, some level of springiness. And then from there, as a, as a coach, you can train that up or down a little bit, but I mean, like, we know you're not going to the NFL. If you don't have at least 205 pounds of muscle period, end of discussion. I'd love to see it. If you can make it, you won't last very long because historically, even some of the top guys are between 215 and 220 and that's on DEXA, you know, and you go see these numbers, but it's not good enough just to have big clunky tissue. You have to train it. And I think that's where also too, you know, being able to dive in and say, yeah, you, you have muscle, but are you forceful? Or are you springy? And I don't know some of the other metrics that you could use, but that muscle that you have over time, over six months, that muscle may have a much more complex or more dynamic movement or repeatability, depending on how you skin it. And I think that's so important, but if you don't know your sport or you don't know your position group, it's, it's kind of hard. And again, like you mentioned, people have these dogma, the stigmas or the things that they don't do, or they, you know, things they swear by. And I I just, I don't know, I think we're headed away from that and it's going to be results oriented because the numbers, the numbers don't lie. Yeah. I mean, I think it's important that people understand what the data is telling them. And, you know, when it, when it gets down to, you know, what we're going to do with an athlete and, you know, what, what does this individual really require to, to improve? It's going to be super unique. Um, you know, even within the sport in positional groups, you might have two or three of the, uh, you know, the, the same um, athlete that you think from watching them, you know, in the positional group that they're all going to have the same need, but it, you know, you can have three different um 
you know, individual needs for that person, both from a health perspective, but also from a performance perspective. So really getting a, a good understanding, like you said, of the sport, but then, you know, what are the individual characteristics that these athletes have that help contribute to those attributes that will allow them to be successful in their position? Um, you know, th those are going to be the things that really allow practitioners to, um, you know, show, show what they're doing is, is going to contribute to the, um, the success of their their teams or their organizations yeah and people think that it's the same so i'd laugh what's the quarterback plan what's the tight end plan what's the fogo plan it's all different i mean we're working off a paradigm of all different dimensions of you know bioenergetics we're working off a whole different paradigm of tissue quality and let's not forget you know in lacrosse or any of the high speed rotary sports you literally get to the point on some of these individuals where they're so forceful you probably saw this in hockey as well they'll throw their back out. They'll literally just torque the SI joint and they'll just absolutely twist themselves like a dish rag. And then, you know, you want to come in and then you try to load it up. And so having, having checkpoints along the way and realizing that all of this stuff, you know, it's just, it's, you know, it's, it's moving all the time. You, you can't just have one plan. You have to have contingency plans every day at the rack, almost like a game. What's our, what's our script? And then how do we audible at the rack to make the right decision? Yeah, and it's almost the the way I look at it too is if you're if you're gonna you know measure something and figure out what the strength is and figure out what the, the massive gap is between their strength and weaknesses, and then you, you're able to say, okay, if if we're gonna have to make a call today, it, maybe we can just focus on their strengths and and do a little bit less just to give them some maintenance to you know, what their needs are that day. And if it's a day where we have an opportunity that athletes fresh and we have some time between games or whatever it might be, we, we can actually prioritize their weakness and give them a little bit of stimulus and, and try to load them up to, to slow that, uh, you know, that decay of strength that you see in season with a lot of athletes and a lot of sports. So um, I think that's critical. And I, you know, on, on the other hand, it's a sport like lacrosse, soccer, hockey, where you have, uh, you know, a, a very high demand of um, need to create forces and be strong and robust, but also a, a huge metabolic component to the game. You have to really figure out where your best, you know, the biggest bang for your buck is going to be when it comes to programming. If, if it's something that, you know, is going to create a bigger imbalance in your athletes from a, a mechanical perspective, maybe it might be the day where you just shift to some metabolic work and whether that's anaerobic capacity or, you know, creating a little bit more, uh, work towards the aerobic base, whatever it might be. Th those are going to be the ways you can um, take that information that you're collecting on a regular basis and provide yourself with the ability to make them, uh, even if it is an audible call that day at the rack, a more informed audible call. Yeah. I mean, what, uh, what are some of the strategies you use um, or have used? Cause I know for us, it was, we'd go in with three options. So like, and, and we talk about the driver metrics and we talk about that, um, you know, we would go in and say, if, if all things are going well, you know, this is our target lift, you know, you know, alpha, we want to do that. You know, we're a little banged up or RP. And again, it could be objective data, their powers down, something we see has changed, the stiffness has changed or something, or that person just looks like a bag of donuts. And we can just say, well, that's not great. And then you get to the other point where sometimes just psychologically, the recovery days are actually more important than any kind of push. And we just have to document that, that, Hey, we missed that strength exposure. We're going to need to make that up somewhere else. What, what was yours? If we went one, two, three, what do you go for? You know, and again, just do a example of something in your head of your kind of thought process you walked through. Yeah. I mean, I, I think there's a couple of things, obviously you want to take the temperature of the room when you walk in, in the morning, or you have the guys coming in the morning and a, there's going to be, there's going to be a lot that gets impacted by, you know, generally the result from the night before. Right. And, you know, over the last five or six years, I had been able to shift our priorities post games to become more um, regeneration based and recovery based. And we put our work uh, back on the next day. So it was a pre pre practice warm up slash lift. So we, we were able to really prioritize rest when we needed to. So, you know, obviously the next day, knowing that we we're going to have a warm up or a lift before practice, you know, we certainly had to understand what, what was the result from the night before, but also what, how much time on ice did these guys have? How beat up are they from the night before? And so, you know, you have the plan, like you said, here's the primary need for this guy. Here's what our plan is going to be. If this guy needs to have a shift, you know, what is the secondary plan? And that generally shifted towards a little bit more emphasis on mobility, um, decreased, volume increased intensity 
Um, you know, and then on the, from the, um, you know, increasing, there's a lot of guys that don't play a lot of minutes. And so when they would come in, they'd be fresh and wanting to work more. And, you know, those guys, you actually figure out ways to um, add some intensity to the, to the mix for them. And then, you know, even if you're adding um, say like a, a, a ballistic movement into the, the program, you can start to contrast and modify, you know, complexes for those guys to get a little bit more neural drive and get them a little bit more effect. Um, so, you know, to me, it's that, that primary need. And then, you know, the secondary shift would have been towards, um, you know, again, more of a, a, a recovery based mindset for the athlete to just address the things that uh, uh, over the, the long term are going to make them healthier. And then, you know, from that third level or that third layer, it's going to be certainly ramping things up for some of the guys. Yeah, I, that's why I think <clears throat> one of the things that I have an issue with is when I see different sorting algorithms and, and you know, I love the history of that stuff of whether you're trying to ID and so to extract out, you know, go find the needle in the haystack or the elimination algorithms of get rid of all the hay. And now you can evaluate all the needles. Um, I think that that that's so important that you understand the difference between the two, because you can easily get caught up in looking at all these different things and all these different metrics and all that. But it starts off with a simplistic thing. Like you said, the first thing you said was check the temperature of the room. And it kind of makes me think that if, if all things equal, if we start all having technology, if we start, you know, uh, you know, your digital, digital workout builder, whatever you use, I've made it clear. I, I, I use team builder over and over at Yale. I've also, you know, done the Excel thing. I've done the Google sheets, but have a history because you need that trend history period to then make your choice from there, from the history, which is the most important data you have, that now informs you as that coach. I wonder too, is as we go forward, there'll be a way to figure out <clears throat> how to use the algorithms for younger coaches to learn the thought processes the correct way. But then also, are we going to see the pendulum swing back to some of the old school days? I think about Joe Mills. You know, Joe Mills was famous USA weightlifting coach, and he would go through and some of the, the work that he did. And some, I mean, there's so many that, that countless coaches, but they, they could just make a read at the rack and they weren't wrong. They're just only one of them, but how do you go and you turn that into, you know, that dosage thing that you talked about and, and what's the right way to go about doing that? Yeah. I mean, that's where I think decision trees can be really useful for coaches because you can start to think about what you, you know, subjectively are able to you know, visualize when it comes to your, you know, knowing your team, right. Knowing the group of people that you're working with and you know, when a guy looks tired um, and when they're not tired. So having a decision tree uh, from a no, both objective um, point of view, and then also from a subjective point of view will allow you to make, a, a, I think a more informed quick change at the rack where you can make a call and it's based off of your, intuition and your expertise with your group but then you, to back that call you can go to the data and say hey look you know you look tired you look like you're beat up or something happened and then we look at the data the data supports that so having a decision tree if you see this go that way if you see that go that way that that could be a very useful tool for a lot of coaches and i think that's where you can bridge the gap between the you know the art of coaching and you know the the science of, uh, you know, monitoring and, and measuring. That's a, that's a great idea. Cause I think that would also have huge implications for athletic training, have implications for the sport coach. Cause oftentimes, you know, there's a misunderstanding or what are we doing? How come this person has a day off? I mean, we were, we were, we were famous for uh, the, what was it? The 10th day of preseason or something like that. And you know what we would do for lift? What do you think we did 10 days into preseason camp of football? What do you think our lift was? Probably squat and bench. We took a nap. <laughs> and I remember people walked in and they said, what do you mean? I said, well, this is the last day or whatever the day was before we started hitting. And so, and I remember players telling me that was my favorite lift of my, my college career. And they just, yep, yep. It was just an hour. Just, hey, turn the music off. Just let them go. And at, people are snoring. You find out who needs a CPAP machine. They yeah. go, they're, they're doing their thing. And then they wake up and like, that was the thing that they needed and they knew it and they worked hard and, you know, you're a week into camp or whatever. And I think that that's one of those things that, you know, you better have a reason why. And, and, you know, my thought process, he was like, we're about to start doing some heavy physical contact. We're not really going to make a ton of tremendous games, but if I can make someone feel better and, and just even just those little naps, 
um, you know, make a big difference and talking about sleep discipline, it was a good segue because everybody did feel better after that. Um, but if you have a decision tree, you can go and say, Hey, you know, here's our roadmap. And I think a lot of people just miss out on those meetings. Cause I know you do this a ton kind of just intuitively. And you've talked about of just having these planning meetings. Mm-hmm. If you're only going into the weight room and that's, that's the time, Oh, we're going to talk about training, whatever you're missing out. I think coach TJ mentioned that right now, you know, for every hour on the floor, you know, they have an hour set up and an hour debrief. And so you right. can talk about it. And I think that that's one of the things that gets overlooked when you get these college students coming out or even just even people young in the field. They think it's all fun. And it's all sexy to get on the floor and work with athletes. Nobody's like, I want to work with 35 year old bankers. Like, right, right. let's do this. Yeah, no, everybody wants the, the fun stuff, but it's a so much prep. And then the, the actual lift is a show, but you have to be ready because it takes one rep to end a career. Yeah, I mean, look, we, I think we spend more time talking about programs and we spend more time, you know, digging through what we thought went well and what we thought we could get better at for the following week on programs than we do actually coaching. And, you know, it's crazy because when we go through all this stuff, it's just like, you know, we have enough uh, data to help us understand. Like, we know what we should, you know, what we expect to have happen is probably going to occur most of the time if, everything is following the same trajectory. Now that's where I think a decision tree is important because you can expect these things to occur and you can have anecdotal evidence that suggests that if I do this, this will generally probably be the outcome. But if you don't have that contingency in place to help you when something doesn't go in the way you thought it was, um, you know, you're going to have to really be quick on your feet to, to create that intervention for the athlete. So um, you know, I, I just, I really think it's critical to have those, those preparation meetings. We actually do our, um, our weekly programming meeting, um, that we do, uh, as a staff every Wednesday, Excuse what we want to do is we want to figure out, okay, what is going well so far in the week? Um, and then what do we need to be ready for, for the end of the week, if we need to make some modifications. And I think that's important. We also talk about each lift after um as a group and you know i think if you're if you're not doing that you're you're probably playing with fire um because it's just it's so critical to make sure that you know uh, what went well with what your expectations were you mentioned programming what's your favorite program or what are some of your favorite architectures that you've used that you're like wow that's pretty cool where you know you have repeatable reliable consistent results yeah i don't know i mean I mean, I, I'm a big fan of, of using Olympic lift variations to, um, you know, create some, you know, adaptations with guys. And I think there's, you know, there's so many different things that you can do. I, I really like, uh, you know, a French contrast modification that we've been using recently. Um, you know, we've kind of created this decision tree, so to speak. We talked about that a little bit today, but when we see an athlete that might have a specific need, um, and it's closely related to another need, we'll, we'll start to dive into some data and we'll look at whether we need to shift that secondary piece to what they're doing, um, to be more stability and strength based, or if we can make that more reactive. So if it's a, you know, biometric, for example, are we going to do a more ballistic biometric or are we going to do a seated box jump where we just completely remove the stretch or an in cycle from the equation? So I think there's, you know, a, a modified PAP, modified French contrast is kind of what, what we're seeing a lot of success with recently. Yeah. We stumbled our way. One that I thought about was, uh, we stumbled our way into this where we were looking to get faster with the pro agility. And so we go through and we look and, you know, obviously we try to get their back squat up, but again, you know, you get up to double and there's point of diminishing returns. So then we're focusing on the front. We're getting to unilateral. We're doing other aspects, but I remember we went in speed squats and we were like, yeah, we're going to give it a shot. So we do, we did it on the back and then we, you know, did it as quick as we could and that didn't work. And so then we tried the front squat. And what was crazy is that when you do that twice a week and you do that for three to four weeks, Almost every single time, I'd probably say without 80 degree, 80% uh, confidence, you're going to see the pro agility drop two tenths. And what was nuts about that was that we did it over and over again. And so we saw that, but that was just an example of, as you mentioned on that Wednesday meeting, we started to look around. We're like, what do they all have in common? And it was like, and again, again, open-minded, oh, let's try back squats. Well, that didn't work. Okay. Front, well, when we, we save that and bank that. And that's just an example of, uh, 
you know, if you don't have those conversations that could have easily got lost and buried, well, one team does it. Well, now that's institutional knowledge and, and you go down the line and you can use that in tennis. You could use that in wherever. And that's just one of many, but I mean, it's just crazy right now. Just the amount of clarity that we can have in the human movement that you literally used to have to have a PhD in to be able to make an inference. And now, you know, Ben and Ben and the gang have made it so simple. You just press the button and go, there's nothing better than watching someone just go pick up a tablet. They go, they learn their one or two metrics that they're looking for. um, And then figuring out, okay, now I've got this metric. What levers can I pull to either, you know, bring this attribute up or, or pull it back down. It's, I don't know. It's crazy. It's changed so much. Yeah. I, I, one, one thing that I think that's been working really well for us is, you know, you can observe some of your better movers, right? Like, you know, what a good movement looks like, you know, who, who's a good athlete when you watch them. And what we've been doing is we've actually been splitting up our, our coaching duties, so to speak. Um, so that the same coach isn't always coaching lifts and the same coach isn't always coaching kind of the rotational movements or the jumps or the, you know, the skill work, so to speak. We've been actually splitting it up because I want us to be able to see what other guys are seeing. Like if I'm coaching lifts all the time, I'm not watching guys jumping by me because I'm focused on the guys in front of me that are lifting. So if I can coach different zones and I can coach some of the different movements that we're um, putting into our programs and, you know, cycle through that, as opposed to just being the guy that coaches the, the lifts, I'm going to get a lot better understanding of what good movers look like, um, you know, over, you know, the long haul, I'm going to be able to say, Hey, look, here are some of the things that these guys do well. Let's go back in and look at some of the things that are, that are measurable and see if we can, you know, find any similarities and what that looks like, you know, what, what is the capacity that these have, these athletes have and, you know, why is the cost of doing business uh, so easy for them? You know, why, why is it so low? And let's see if there's some things that we can quantify to, to allow us to better understand what that looks like. What are, what are the, like, the high qualities that, that we can quantify for uh, a good moving athlete? Now, do you go and do assign the, the junior coaches? Because for, for us, one of the biggest things was, you know, we had a high volume of turnover. Plus, we had, you know, 160 interns in three years. So we're trying to figure out to expose them to certain levels and when they're ready. Because, again, you know, you could be the best uh, prospect either as an athlete or as a coach. But if you go in and you have a bad experience or something happens, you can ruin a career. And, and I think that goes the same for professional. If you put someone in over their head and they get intimidated at the racks, do you have a plan or a strategy as you're kind of mentoring and developing the coaches to that rotation? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm fortunate right now in our situation where I have, you know, there's four of us, including myself, and then, you know, the, the three other guys I have on my staff all, all have worked at, at the professional level. So, I mean, as far as the trust that I have in them, to operate at a, you know, at a, at a high level is, is there. And, you know, when we have interns or we have junior coaches, you know, they're, they're given opportunity to really, you know, explore their abilities as a coach, but it's, it's under the guidance of one of these other um, senior coaches on the staff, because it's, it's important for them to, to learn and make mistakes, but those mistakes are going to be made during warm up. Those mistakes are going to be made, you know, in a way that isn't going to potentially, injure an athlete or put them at risk, um, for, you know, affecting their, their career, or their, their uh, ability to create earnings. So, you know, you want to put them in situations where they can experience coaching, but at, from, from my perspective, those situations need to be earned and they need to be developed and, you know, under the guidance of a good coach who's willing to allow them to shadow them. I think you're going to find, you know, that's that level of, um, competence becomes a little bit uh, more efficient for, for those types of coaches that have good mentors and uh, people that are willing to, you know, Hey, that's not the right way to do that. This is how you do that. And this is why Um, that that's, you know, for me, I was fortunate to have really good people, um, you know, that were able to mentor me. And so that's exactly what I'm trying to do with the people that we bring in that are, you know, hoping to be a, a career long performance coach. I love that. They got to earn it. I, I, I can, can't begin to tell you the number of times I would sit and watch how our interns clean the racks. Did they do it with care and intent? Were they intentional? And, and again, at the, at the point when, you know, you're in it as a, as an intern and, you know, any, any kind of entry level position, you're like, this sucks. This is, this is a waste of time. I hate doing this, but really what you're looking for is not how they clean the plates. It's not how they put away the rack. 
It's how meticulous are they? Because at the end of the day, that eye has to be able to see everything. You go over and you look on mechanics. You say, how did that squat look? Oh yeah, it looked good. Well, did you notice that one foot was pointed at, you know, three o'clock and the other foot was, you know, pointed out at 11, like that's different. And what does that mean to the hip? And is it a rotational athlete? And those layers, as you start to go down the rabbit hole, it takes such a persistent, uh, detailed type of, I don't know, psychology to be able to handle that. And I would tell everybody, there's a lot of great 10 hour coaches. You can do it for 10 hours a week, but can you do it for 20? Can you do it for 30? You're tired. You're hungry. Nobody cares because that athlete's going to come in. And as you mentioned, if it's a professional athlete, we're talking millions of dollars. It's a career, it's livelihood. And it's all the mouths that have to be fed by that. And just making sure, and I, I can't tell you the number of interns that afterwards they come back and be like, I get why we had to pick the turf. I get why we had to scrub the bars because all of those things and, and that segue. And I love too how you put it out, like you have to be able to make mistakes. I would always tell people fail fast, but you know, you live in this etch-a-sketch world where I want to see if you can ID the squad and come talk to me as the coach. And so you can come shadow me and you can say whatever you want to me. I'm going to still make the call on the weight, make the call on the correction and the cue. But you know, the number of times, how did that look? That bench, oh, the bench looked good. Yeah. Well, well, their their ass was about six inches off the pad and the elbows are flared out and they did it. But we know from technique and anatomy, if he continues to do that or she continues to do that, that's gonna, you know, that's gonna that's gonna really hamper the longevity of this this uh this joint. Oh, I didn't see that. Okay, well, but now you did. Let's see if you can ID it. And then the next time they do. But if you're not afraid to, if you if you don't fail and you don't fail often early on. You're going to have the fake sense of uh, confidence, which to me, the scariest thing is an overconfident young coach. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the, the one thing I'll tell every, you know, every intern class that we've had, every, you know, young assistant that I've ever had, it, it's, it's simple. It's really, you know, when you, you're, it's okay to fail and I expect you to, but don't fail because of the, your inability to pay attention to details. And that is really like the, the simplest uh, explanation I give them is, you know, pay attention to details and do your best. But if you're failing because you did not pay attention to details, you're going to be in a, a, a whole world of hurt. And, you know, I look back, my first day in St. Louis was the first day of development camp. And, and when I got there, there was probably six interns that were, um, you know, on the staff and, you know, I'm looking around and, I, you know, in Vancouver, there was, there was two of us and we had a full-time intern, but you know, we never had more than two interns. And so I get there and well, why are there six of you guys? And the, you know, they're all standing around and, you know, I said, okay, well, let, let's see, let's, uh, how about you go do this? You go do that. Why don't you take the empty, the, the bin and, um, you know, and then we'll, we'll talk about what we're going to do for the week. Um, you know, and I look over to the, to the one kid about 10 minutes later, and instead of emptying the bin, he made a pyramid of garbage. And I just had to ask him simply, like, how long are you waiting till that pyramid tips over before you take that bin out? And it was just, you know, that was his last day as our intern, um, you know, because, you know, I could take the garbage out myself, but, you know, that's, that's not the, the point here. It's not, you know, I didn't ask you to, to, you know, create the Taj Mahal of garbage. I just wanted you to take it out. Yeah, being able to take that next step of initiative is so critical. I mean, I think you'd lose your mind. I think our largest intern class we had was 28 interns all at one time. Mm. That was an experience. It was great. It's a lot. So we had to get them in and, and they all had different levels. And it was great. It was learning. And those kind of like mass troops, if you will, of people, you have to handle that differently. And it was funny is that, you know, my very first group of interns I ever worked with was back in 2008. And it was interesting because one of the things we noticed over the past couple of years was since the advent of Instagram, TikTok, and that, we would always talk about coach positioning. I don't know how you guys set up in your weight room, but one of the things we would always talk about, and it was one of our actual assistants when I got to Yale, made a really great point, which is that he had been told, pretend like you have sand in your pocket. Pretend like you have sand in your pocket. If there is a giant dune under your feet because you stood there, and typically it's at a hard right or basically wherever Instagram people selfies from the back or from the side, they'll sit there and camp out. I remember setting my stopwatch. I went up to one individual. I said, you stood here for eight minutes. You have the largest pyramid of sand ever. And so we'd actually practice walking and moving. And then of course that went the other way where we look like a bunch of psychos and we're flying around. But I think the natural, and I said to the, the interns, the natural inclination is, is you want to be out of the way, but you have to be able to see things. But then you look at a, a, an older coach or a more seasoned coach, you have to move to see the angles because you can't see 
certain things from certain angles. And so how do you naturally flow? And we would literally practice that. You could walk into an empty weight room and you see a bunch of interns just kind of milling around and coming out on the 45 and moving to the 90 and getting to the front and not getting sucked into the racks. If you have, you know, 15, 20, 30 racks and you get wedged deep in there, I mean, now you have a safety problem. So we would all, we would practice movement. So if you're, you're a coach and you know, you've got these young interns, it's kind of on you. It's kind of on you to set up a curriculum for them to be successful. As long as they're positive attitude and they're ready to work, they're giving max effort. Um, you know, you have to have a, a system set up in place in order to do that. What, what's the craziest thing you've ever had as far as uh, seeing development and growing pains, not growing funds in front of you? What did you see? Oh, man. I don't know. I mean, I've had an intern who, you know, I'm, hey, I need you to warm this group up. And because, you know, you, you get into these development camps and you get into these like, preseason windows where you have you know four groups one's on ice one's warming up one's in the way you know you you have to really kind of spread the love a little bit and so i had an intern who uh you know i, I tasked with our younger group and he had been with me for you know three months and he said okay you're gonna be with this group you're gonna run this group through warm-ups you're gonna go this is the lift for the day you're gonna run through it um, i come back from getting the heart rate uh laptop uh, by the bench and he's working out with the guys love it and, and i'm like you know and i'm yeah I, I was like hey bud where are the shakes you know like i i like that you're you know want to stay in shape here but you're not a player let's go so uh yeah it's you get a little bit of a you know a, a full spectrum of people and um it's just crazy what you get sometimes with some of these kids and you know they're there's some that just completely um, shock you at how good they are already. And, you know, I think that's a, a testament to all the people that are working at high levels that are willing to share what they do. And, you know, social media posts, like we were talking about earlier, you know, the people that are willing to share ideas and share what their framework looks like and how they operate. I think that's putting young coaches in a really good spot now to, to be in a position to support athletes at a high level. Um, early on in their careers and then also, you know, continue to hopefully develop and become, you know, those, those high level practitioners, um, you know, that, that are out there right now. What's the biggest attribute that you look for? Um, I look for someone who is going to be uh, trustworthy. I, I try to find characteristics in people that I feel like I can trust. If I can trust them, I can help mentor them. If I can trust them, I can count on them. And those, that's the biggest thing. If you can, if you can be someone that can um, demonstrate that you're a trustworthy person, you're going to be someone that I'll dedicate my effort to, uh, into helping. And so that's the number one attribute that I look for. Uh, I was fortunate enough to get to hang out with uh, General McChrystal at Yale and we go around and, you know, we, we would do things that get, he would take us on a tour at Gettysburg and then we would speak to him. And, you know, it's really great when you get a chance to talk to guys like that. And, you know, we start talking about elite performers within all aspects of business and life and whatever, and get into the, some of the, you know, military stuff. And it's, you know, what's the number one thing. And, you know, you're thinking about athleticism, you're thinking whatever. And he said to me, he's like, you got to have team people. So team guys or team, team ladies. And I said, what do you mean? And so we started looking at that and, you know, sure enough, you start thinking about some of the top people in our field, their ability to have relationships because they're not going to do it for themselves. They're going to, they don't want to let you down. And so one of the things I would ask on an interview is, you know, start to say, okay, well, tell me about your five friends. Well, if there's only one or if they don't have friends or it's all about them, because they'll very quickly tell you about how great they are. You know, oh, you know, I, I have, you know, my brother does this, my, you know, best friend from high school does that. And, and it's not that you're looking for, you know, 10 is better than five, but there seemed to be that magic number of individuals where you would start to see, wow, this person doesn't want to let them down. I think that governs a lot of their behaviors um, when they're out of work or when, you know, like you mentioned the, the trash pile, the pyramid there you know, if they're thinking about their teammates and not, you know, making more work for them, they're probably not going to behave like that. So that was one of the things that we always looked for and had pretty good success with is that if you have a person who's really team focused, I don't want to let the team down. That seemed to be a really good foundation. As you mentioned to the loyalty and then just being a hard worker. I mean, this, the industry is not easy. 
It is not easy. It is not a job. It is a way of life. It is a lifestyle. And you have to embrace the suck for the first couple of years and realize that that it is not going to change unless the economics start to change, which I don't think they will. You, know, you just have to deal with it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a simple phrase that, you know, it's a, I don't know how common it is in other sports, but in hockey, you know, you're, are you good in the room? And if you're good in the room, you could be a uh, bad at a lot of things, but you'll still have a place on that team. And so, you know, you're a good team guy, you're good in the room, you're going to have a place on a lot of people's rosters, whether it's on the performance team or, you know, as an athlete. And I think, you know, that that's part of being trustworthy. That's part of being hardworking. It's part of all those things that you talked about. And, you know, if you're good in the room, you're going to have a spot on my team and I'm going to do whatever I need to do to help you. And, and that's, you know, that the simplest way I can, kind of describe that concept. Yeah. Well, kind of as we close this out here, what are what are some of the things at the top of your mind as you go into the summer? Things that you're curious about, whether it's a book, whether it's a concept in the weight room, what do you what do you got brewing for the summer? Yeah, I mean, we're we're doing quite a bit. I think the the things that I'm you know, focused on right now, um, I think the biggest things are are really going to be um, trying to look at more uh, data and I talk about we talked about data a ton uh, over the last few weeks here. But where I'm looking at uh, trying to start to uh, take things up a notch is on the velocity profiling and really start to look at some of the kinetics that are involved in what we're able to measure um, from the, the speed perspective and the ability to change direction. So looking at some of the things that are, are contributing factors to the ability to you know be a fast or uh, you know a good runner in terms of acceleration um you know one of the other things that we're really working on here right now is the, the topic of biomarkers right we chatted a, a little bit about that earlier but we're starting to um, dive into inside tracker quite a bit um, and we're using that as a way to give us a, a little bit more when it comes to our ability to create interventions for our athletes. And, uh, you know, we're, we're trying to figure out uh, easy ways to make that a piece of the puzzle for our, our intake process. So, um, those biomarker analysis, and then, um, really bridging the gap between the, the kinetics and the kinematics of, of you know, speed profiling and, and trying to, again, figure out what we can measure, um, you know, that, that is going to contribute to the things that, that we can see, um, from, you know, the speed standpoint of things. That's awesome. Well, you'll have to keep us posted. We'll have to do an update here later on in the summer. So I know we, uh, we've talked about it too, for on my side of things, I, I am absolutely fascinated with cognitive function in the toxic environment. And so looking at toxic environments as, you know, high load, either squats or compound, uh, movements, uh, looking at some of the open field stuff, looking at some of the hiking and then thinking and with decision-making, because I, I think it would be really neat to do a deep dive into the dumbs because when we get our athletes, when they get tired and whether they're tired, you know, winded or they're tired cognitively, they're tired emotionally. It's really interesting to look at that drop off. And I, and I know speaking with a couple other individuals that sometimes it's as much as we talk about the you know, ramp up to that, you know, whatever peak value or repeated peak value, how do they handle coming down? And then did it take you two minutes to reload or did it take you 30 seconds to reload? So that, that's kind of my, my jam this summer. So hopefully uh, you know, we'll, we'll debrief here this summer at some point and share it up. But uh, again, I think uh, we are just at the tip of the iceberg of being able to integrate all this stuff into the field and do what's best for our athletes. So, well, sir, it's been a pleasure. Another great night. Everyone listening. Thank you so much for taking the time. As always, we'd love to hear your questions. And we I promise we will have a podcast coming up here where we'll just do an AMA and we'll we'll go through all those and, and answer those for you. Um, if you haven't figured out or haven't checked out our website uh, to get our email, it's there. If not, follow us on Instagram. We love hearing from you and stay tuned. And we'll look forward to seeing you next week. Thanks.